0: Before we get started with today's episode, we wanted to take a minute to tell you another really fun thing that we did with today's guest, Lauren Shippen. While we were talking about Clue, we discovered that Lauren came to the Buffyverse by watching Angel first and then watching Buffy. We thought that was fascinating, so we wanted to have a conversation with her about it. If you'd like to hear it, you can go to our Patreon page. A shorter version of the full conversation is available to everybody, but the full conversation is available to our $5 and up patrons. We hope you enjoy it, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks! and welcome to the show. This is episode number 30 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Clue on your, to make a long story short, podcast. (laughs) I'm Mandy Kay.
1: And I'm Matthew Vose.
0: Today's guest is Lauren Shippen. She is creator, writer, and actor on the audio drama podcast, The Bright Sessions, which is about people with supernatural abilities in therapy. We've mentioned the Bright Sessions on several occasions throughout Pop Culturally Deprived's short life, so hopefully you've listened to her show and are on the edge of your seat for season four, just like me. So Lauren, I'm so excited you're here, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited about this. Uh, listening to you talk is amazing, because I feel like, you know, I'm talking, <laughs> I feel like I'm you're on Bright Sessions Sam. talking to you, so. <laughs> it's good. It's in the atmosphere. That's awesome. So Lauren, can you tell us a little bit about why this is your favorite movie or at least one of your favorite movies and, and why you wanted to talk about it with us today?
2: Yeah. Um, this is a movie that obviously you know has a, a massive cult following, but I still think is is deeply underappreciated. I saw it for the first time when I was, I think, nine or 10 and just have watched it so many times since. I love how clever it is how funny it is how self-aware it is i am a huge huge mystery fan i grew up reading uh you know like basil of baker street the sherlock holmes where he's a mouse for kids and then getting into sherlock holmes and then getting into agatha christie and and just i've always loved mystery particularly kind of the old like everybody's in a manor home and somebody's died type of mystery so to see that then deconstructed in this movie in a really clever way is just so satisfying for me
1: and have you have you watched the film in the build-up to this recording I have just once did you watch
2: it once <laughs> i yes, I just watched it once, um, but I like when I say I watch this movie a lot, I mean that I watch it like four or five times a year, so wow. <laughs> even before rewatching it before this recording, I had still i think my previous time watching it was like two months ago, so i i really it's i basically can do the whole film by myself. <laughs>
0: Well maybe instead of talking
2: about the movie we'll just have you recite the just whole have thing. You recite <laughs> the entire thing. I can do the soundtrack too. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Only if you do the accents as well.
2: Oh gosh, that I'm not quite sure I could do.
1: <laughs> um Mandy, how come you've not seen this film?
0: Uh that's complicated with this one because I swear I have memories of watching this movie over and over as a child. But I really couldn't tell you anything about it other than it was based on a board game and Tim Curry was in it, which is why we decided it, it qualified to do it on the show. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why I, I don't know, because I, I can't give you the same reasons that I haven't watched other things. Like it's not because of my conservative upbringing or anything, because I'm pretty sure I probably did watch it as a kid. I just don't really don't remember it. it. I mean, some of it was vaguely familiar when I was watching it, but it, I had no idea who did it at the end. I didn't remember that there were multiple endings. And so I honestly don't know if I had seen it or not. And I know that's really not a great answer for the question, but (laughs) that's where I am on this one.
2: It makes sense, though. I feel like it's a movie that's oftentimes just like on, you know, it's like at a friend's house or something growing up. I Mm -hmm. I think that, like, I first saw it at a friend's house. So it wouldn't surprise me if you'd sort of caught snippets at it, you know. Yeah. Other people who maybe were fans of the film.
0: Yeah, I'm lost. I just, I don't know. But I'm really, really glad that I've seen it now, so... <laughs> Good. It's oh, it's so great.
1: <laughs> yeah, reading so much about it and just looking at references and, and things other people have written, so many people just put, oh, I was flicking around the channels on TV one day and this strange comedy was on that seemed to be based on a board game. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's... I, I, I feel like so many things now have been based on board games or just mm. sort of random properties. Like, I, they made a Battleship movie and all that, yeah. and I... I, I think that this is this is the only one I can think of that actually I think does it successfully.
1: And of course we're timing this twenty seventeen, the release of the emoji movie.
2: Oh god. <laughs> that's, <laughs> Lord, that's a thing. <laughs> oh, that is a thing that's happening. There are billboards <laughs> all over LA about it. I hate it. Oh. But you guys I finally saw the trailer for it and part of me actually wants to see it. <laughs> I you know what, the cast is so good yeah. that I kind of wonder if it's actually a really good script. But I don't oh, I don't know.
0: Well, I mean, the trailer kind of makes it look like it's one of those movies about
2: figuring out who you
0: really are and doing what you want to do rather than what you're supposed to do. And I am all about that message. So, you know, I kind of want to see how they take this movie that's about emojis that I don't even use because I think I'm too old for them (laughs) and and see what
2: they did with it. So, yeah, who knows? We'll have to have to wait and see Mm -hmm. if, if it's any good. Yeah, it won't be as good as Clue, though. No, Not, very, very few things are as good as Clue. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I'm going to kick us off with some history on the film. It's a 1985 comedy thriller based on the 1949 game Cluedo, which is known as Clue in the US. It was written by Jonathan Lynn, and also who also directed, and was written alongside John Landis. The film has a large ensemble cast, which includes Tim Curry, Eileen Brennan, Christopher Lloyd, Martin Mull, and Madeline Kahn. My sister's called Madeline, so it's really (laughs) hard to say Madeline. (laughs) (laughs) This film is famous for having three different endings, representing the different outcomes you can get in a game of Cluedo. When released theatrically, each cinema received a different ending, so that viewers would only see one. When it came to home video, all three endings were available. Some theatres, during its run, announced which ending they had in the hope that it would spur people to try and see all three. Clue was a commercial failure, though. It grossed just under its production budget in the US, and it was also critically panned. The idea of making a movie based on a board game was not a good starting point for most critics.
2: I'm honestly not that surprised that it did really bad in theatres, because I think the the concept of playing a different ending... In different showings is crazy to me.
0: Mm.
2: <laughs> like the the whole fun of it is is seeing all three endings back to back, and the idea that like oh well if we have you know if the last fifteen minutes is different, people are going to come see this movie three times. So no one's ever going to do that. That's that's an insane way to market a movie. I'm not, I'm not surprised that it did not work, especially in 1985. <laughs> yeah, like even though movie tickets are probably you know five dollars, it's still you're that's two hours out of your day that you're spending watching the same you know, hour and a half and only for a different half an hour at the end. Right. It doesn't really make sense.
0: Well, Matthew kind of just told us what it was about because it's based on Clue. But if you're unfamiliar with the board game and the movie itself, uh, this movie is about six guests who are invited to a strange house and end up having to solve a few murders, which actually makes it sound like a really, really delightful movie. <laughs> 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 you know,
2: it's a very dark premise. <laughs> <laughs> Go to it's, dinner and get murdered.
1: <laughs> it's very much in the, uh, the Agatha Christie tradition.
2: Absolutely. Mm. Now, we do like to tell everybody how we
0: watch the film in case there are folks who haven't seen it and would also like to watch along with us. Uh, in the U.S., this movie is actually on Hulu, thankfully. So I was actually able to watch it with my Hulu subscription.
1: In the U.K., for once, a movie was on Netflix, so we got to watch it over here on that?
2: Uh, I didn't realize it was on Hulu. I actually own it on iTunes. Um, so I just watched nice. it on that. I also clearly misinterpreted this question and thought it was like the first time you saw the film.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, that's okay. Why don't you tell us? Well, you kind of did tell us, but why don't you tell us about the first time?
2: Um, yeah, I was I was at a friend's house, family friend's house, and my sister and, and her friend kind of like went off to go do something. And so I, I think, you know, none of our parents were home and I was maybe like nine or ten. So they were, you know, kind of... Half babysitting me because my sister's older, and so they just like sat me down and they're like, "You're gonna love this movie," <laughs> mm-hmm. and I just was in this little study in in uh, in my friend's house just watching it for the first time, and I remember the part where, like, Mr. Body comes out of the bathroom after you think he's dead, just scaring me so much, Um, Uh and that kind of, like, making me nervous to watch the movie again afterwards, but I, I, it, I went away with, like, such a great impression of it that I ended up watching it again, and then it sort of just became a habit where it's a movie I watch all the time now.
0: That's awesome. I feel like it's a very, very dark movie for a young child to see, but that's when you first saw it, and I'm pretty sure I did actually see it when I was that age, too. I just don't don't really remember and that's that's just weird because there's so much violence and death in this movie, even though it's it's not super bloody. Um yeah, which is not. nice. I mean it's definitely intended to be a comedy, but it's I mean, six
2: people get murdered. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. And it's I it is sort of a weird movie to show a kid. I mean I think at that point I'd seen a lot of I don't know. Like my my parents enjoy movies and TV and stuff, so I, I grew up watching all sorts and lots of old movies and things like that. And I think with this, the because I was already in this mode of like reading like murder mysteries, because this was at the age when I was starting to get into the original Sherlock Holmes stories and like Edgar Allan Poe and all of that. Uh, what really went over my head was all of the all of the sort of more adult jokes. Um, that I think if you're young enough they just sort of soar right past you that it's sort of okay to, to sit a kid down in front of it. And yeah. all the all the deaths are kind of played for comedy, which I don't know if that makes it better or worse, but I definitely enjoyed it at, you know, <laughs> 10 years old. Yeah.
1: You've said you can remember bits and pieces, Mandy. What expectations did you have coming in to watch it this time?
2: I really just
0: expected to watch a funny murder mystery story, which is what we got. So it it, yeah. it fairly lived up to those expectations this time.
1: And your experience of John Landis. So Jonathan Lynn is not a, a big name in film direction, but John Landis is a, a a significant person. What's your experience of him in the past?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, for the very first time, I think I can say I have no experience of, of someone that we're talking about. I mean, I, I've i never even heard his name before. Really? And And I looked him up, and I'm not familiar with anything that he's done, so... Wow. Yeah, usually, even if I've not seen something they've done, I've at least heard their name, and that is not the case this
2: time. So I'm living up to my name this time. <laughs> he did a lot of stuff in the 80s, so it's like, I guess, mm. if you haven't seen a lot of movies from the 80s, it wouldn't be a name that you know. But I, I mean, I'm trying to think of what else of his that I've seen. I think what American Werewolf in London, Blues Brothers, Animal House. Mm. Like, if those those are, I think, kind of his biggest films yeah well, I have at least heard of those films, but I've definitely <laughs> yeah. never seen them.
0: Fair enough. So, um I think the biggest gap in my pop culture knowledge does tend to center around the eighties, okay, it's kind of like a giant black hole in my life, interesting, yeah. And um, uh, Tim Curry, you know, we we just talked on the show about Tim Curry a couple weeks ago because we did Rocky Horror Picture. So amazing. So um, yeah, absolutely amazing. And I'm not any more familiar with Tim Curry now than I was then, other than adding Rocky Horror to it. So wow.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And and watching Sweet Transvestite.
2: Yeah, exactly. That was your first time seeing Rocky Horror. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. That's such yeah. a that's such a fun fun movie.
0: Mm-hmm. It was. It was great. And and so I think it was really good to watch Rocky Horror before I watched Clue um because it just it set Tim Curry up on a pedestal that I'm not sure he he would have been on if Clue was the first thing I saw him in. But having him already be there, he stayed there. Yeah. If that makes sense.
2: That totally makes sense cuz I I mean, he Obviously, his role in Clue is very, very different. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> playing but it, there's sort of a, a theatricality to it. And uh, mm. the thing I love about Tim Curry is that he just, he's always doing 100%. You know, he commits fully to every mm-hmm. role that he takes on, no matter how silly or how outlandish. And you kind of can't take your eyes off of him, which is, which is why he's such a compelling actor. Absolutely.
1: Um, obviously, this is based on another property. Um, have you ever played Clue, Cluedo? Uh, do you know much about the game itself?
0: I've never played it, but that's—you can't play board games by yourself. And <laughs> um, I, I'm very, very introverted, and I grew up much more introverted and shy than I am now. So I didn't really have opportunities to play board games. But I—I I am familiar with the concept of it. I mean, everybody's heard of, you know, Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick you right know, things like that so i mean I, I i understand the various characters and their names and like the different weapons and that the point is to figure out who did it i
2: just never had an opportunity to figure it out matthew have you played cluedo
1: oh many years ago and, it, and it's oh, really I guess
2: funny I'm, I'm the only person who like grew up playing it all the time <laughs> really yeah well this is why you're on as our clue expert apparently <laughs> in every sense of the word
1: there There is something in the film that it's almost not actually hamstrung by but it it really does try to bring in as much of the game as possible, like you say the characters and the weapons and all the rooms and the secret tunnels and everything's in an envelope and the different endings and they they really did very heavily base it
2: i I love that because it it makes sense in context for me. You know, like it, all of like mm. the secret passageways and all the different rooms, and the fact that they're all kind of like running around. And uh, I think, I think the biggest stretch is the weapons, just because the weapons are all weird in the game. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's like one real weapon. There's one gun, and the rest of them are sort of like various objects.
1: Yeah, a noose. No, there's a
2: knife. There's a knife True. and a, and a, and a noose, and I mean, but <laughs> then like a candlestick and a lead pipe and a wrench. What's the a wrench? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but the noose on its own
1: is not the most helpful of. Motor weapons compared to the rest, definitely.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the the revolver and the knife are definitely more useful.
1: Okay, Mandy, did you enjoy watching Clue?
2: I did. Um I, I for full disclosure, it, it did take me two tries.
0: The first night I sat down to watch it, I got about fifteen minutes in and I hadn't laughed a single time yet. And so I was thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to enjoy this movie and I'm mm. just in a grumpy mood. Ah. <laughs> and so I turned it off so that I could try again and hopefully appreciate it more and that was the right call because whenever um, I sat down to watch it again uh, this past Thursday um, I really really got into it and I really really liked it so I don't know what was wrong with me that first day I think I was just having an off day um, but I'm really glad that I didn't try to watch it in that mood because I think I wouldn't have appreciated it but in the end I did it was really good and, and I would definitely watch this one again.
2: It is – I, I really feel like it is a movie that gets better on rewatch. Um, mm. And I, I've met – I feel like I've met a lot of people who they will see it for the first time and not really be feeling it and then kind of see it again and it grows on them. And I think it's because I, – I don't know. My impression of this movie is that it's, it's not necessarily trying to make you laugh. It's not necessarily trying to do anything. It just is what it is. And if you go in with sort of like – a mindset of i'm just going to go along with this sort of the silliness and earnestness of it I, it's a really really good time yeah definitely
1: so my my first question in talking about this that always comes to me is do we think it's a good idea to base a film on a board game and do, does this work in that context
2: i think as an idea adapting board games into films is is not a good one <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> it is something i i am sort of mostly against just because most board games don't, you know, have a story mm. um, and don't zero, really yeah. have yeah, and don't really have characters necessarily. I mean, you know, like like Battleship, it's like Battleship's, uh, you know, they made a movie off of a board game that basically has no plot or no mm. uh, there's nothing to hang anything on, you know. I think if you're gonna adapt a board game, something like this, or you know, I mean, there's lots of different board games that now that have been made in sort of the past ten or fifteen years that have stories to them. But I think the fact that there are characters and there is, you know, a very clear setting and there is a plot in, in the sense that the thing that you're trying to accomplish is figuring out a murder, which is a sort of story in of itself. It it doesn't seem totally crazy to me. I mean, I think that basing a a movie off of Clue is sort of like taking an Agatha Christie book and, and adapting that into film. Like most Agatha Christie books have very linear mystery plots. Mm. Um, and I think that what makes this movie interesting and what kind of makes it the board game is the fact that it has three different endings. Because then it's, you know, but you can play it you can play the board game and get a different ending each time and the movie kind of harkens back to that, which I like. Mm. Yeah, I think I really, I really like what they did with it because,
0: you know, in in the board game, you really just have the fact that you have character names, you have potential weapons, you have a a house, and then you have an outcome. But you don't have anything else. And so they had the freedom to figure out how to tell the story Mm -hmm. with the movie. And that's how we get the whole you know, blackmailing thing and how everybody's tied together and they all kind of sort of know each other and that sort of thing. And so I really like that they they took all of this random information, put it together in a way that actually makes sense, but still, like you said earlier, was self-aware enough to understand that they're basing it on a board game and so yeah. they're going to make fun of themselves too. Yeah. And so you kind of get a little bit of the best of both worlds, I think, and I I don't know that there's another game where they could do the same thing and have it be successful.
2: Yeah, definitely not a game that is this straightforward. Because I think there there are lots of narrative games now, like, uh, what is it, The House on the Haunted Hill or something? And, I mean, there's a bunch of Mm -hmm. sort of narrative story tabletop games that you can buy now. But they're all incredibly intricate and complex, you know, and it takes sort of 30 minutes to figure out the rules and then to to play the game. And sometimes you can't even finish a game in one evening. Whereas Clue is so straightforward and so simple. And you can play it, you know, with, with a couple people and spend an hour or two and get to the end of the board game. And I think what's great, like, as you said, of taking all of these sort of disparate parts and making a story out of it. Like it the game never explains who all these people are and why they're there. And so answering that question and then making Mr. Body the person who's like blackmailing them. And then I think what really holds this movie together for me and I think just narratively is is Tim Curry's character. Because he's sort of almost like the player. You know, he's, he's kind of the stand-in for the audience or for a person playing the board game and trying to tie all these things together and figure out who murdered who. And then at the end, he's sort of the one saying, this is how all of these things could happen. Yeah. And this is how it really happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think kind of having a stand-in for the audience and then giving that role to Tim Curry is, is, was definitely a stroke of genius. <laughs>
1: yeah. And like I said in the uh, history section, the, the endings are one of the famous things about this. The fact that there are these different ways you can work it through. Are we supposed to be trying to figure it out ourselves as we go through? It feels a little bit too frenetic for me to be able to do that.
0: I couldn't do it. I still I still <laughs> don't, don't know that I could do it. I wanted to go back and watch it and see if they did plant clues throughout to give us any of the endings. Um, particularly the one that they told us really happened and I just didn't have time. Hmm. So f- for me...
2: No, <laughs> I don't think we were supposed to. Um, but maybe <laughs> I no, I agree with you. I don't think we're supposed to. Um, and I think it's partly because, you know, there are a couple different options for who it could be. Everybody could have done it. And then the fact that the ending is everybody did it, essentially. Yeah. It that very much like I'll keep referencing Agatha Christie because this is so much of this movie has Agatha Christie DNA in it and that's something with her books a lot of the time where I I think it's I've read I think probably anywhere between 20 and 30 Agatha Christie novels I I love her Um, and it's funny to me that sort of her two most famous novels are what I think her like weakest mysteries or some of her weakest mysteries which are And Then There Were None and Murder on the Orient Express which is probably her most famous and which has spoiler alert for a book that's been published for one hundred years, has a very, very similar ending to clue. And it's one of those things where there's literally no way you can figure it out because the answer is almost too dumb to be obvious. <laughs> <laughs> I will keep that in mind when I go see the new movie that's coming yeah. out. Mm-hmm. It's it's it just seems it's it's just it's almost like an Occam's razor thing, right? Of like the you know, the simplest solution is the real one. Except it's like the dumbest solution. Like whatever is sort of the most, it's not that it's so outlandish or so hard to figure out. It just doesn't necessarily make logical sense. And I think that that's the case with Clue as well, where it's like, okay, I guess everybody did it. That makes sense. Or I guess so-and-so did it. That makes sense. But any of the options could have made sense. So I I don't think you're really supposed to figure it out. I think the fun is, is sort of watching them try to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I can agree with that.
1: As our clue expert, are there people missing in some of the scenes when they race from room to room?
2: Yes. They do keep consistent with that. Okay. Yeah, you know, when they go and Yvette is screaming and they go into the, the billiards mm. room and uh, there is, oh, God, who's, I'm now totally mixing it up. But there there is somebody missing. Okay. And it lines up with each ending. So, you know. I, I Miss Scarlet and Mrs. Peacock both kill the people that they end up killing in, in the sort of final ending where everybody did it. And they're both missing
0: right. in those
2: scenes that they would have been killing those people. So it, it actually, they do really stay consistent with it. And, and it all holds together, actually. Like the plot of the movie holds together in all three endings, which is, I think, a neat little trick. Okay.
0: I Yeah, I think the next time I watch it, I feel like I need to sit down with a notepad. And, like, kind of keep track of who is in each scene, who had which murder uh, weapon, and, and kind of see if if it does work for me in that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, it worked without doing that. Just just kind of watching it and, and just going with the flow, it, it worked for me. But then I started thinking, particularly when the cook was killed and they were saying somebody wasn't in the room, I was like, well, I wonder – you know, were they all in there? Because it wasn't obvious to me watching it that somebody was missing. But then I wasn't looking for that either, and right. so like I want to go back and look for it.
2: Yeah, and it's it's I think directed and filmed in such a way that you're not supposed to notice. And so they are they do maintain the consistency of the people not being there. But I, I like particularly I, that kitchen scene. You know, they they all enter. And it's sort of everybody's running around, and there's enough people that you kind of see people filing into the room as the camera starts to pan towards the refrigerator, and or that that big freezer. Mm. And so the camera actually oftentimes pulls away before you can see everybody enter a room. So you don't even necessarily have a chance to see who's missing or to, to right. count the number of heads in the room because the camera then is focused on a, on a smaller bit of action, which I think is, is really smart because it happens sort of seamlessly that you just sort of assume everybody's there, even if they're not. And because of the secret passageways, you know, they're able to, to work all that stuff out. Was there anything in watching it where you were like, no, I can't, I can't get on board with this. This is too ridiculous. The first time I was watching it, yes, which is why I turned it off. <laughs> what, what was it that, like, set you off? <laughs> t-
0: t- t- oh, I, I don't even remember, honestly. It was um, – I think I turned it off before any, any of the murders even happened. It was yeah. um, when – I think it was when they all filed in, like, right after Mr. Body first got there.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: and they were all being so secretive about not actually doing the things that they were admitting they were being blackmailed
2: for. yeah.
0: And I was like, you know what? I don't think this is funny. And I'm annoyed and irritated at these people because they're stupid. <laughs> That's why I turned it off. But the second time, I, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know what was different other than my mood. And so yeah. when I watched it the second time, I was just right there with them. I mean, the, the jokes and the, the physical comedy was way over the top sometimes. Oh yeah. And, and that, <laughs> that part didn't make me laugh very often. But it was one of those kind of funny, affectionate eye rolls that I would give them rather than saying, oh, I I can't deal with this. So right. I think when I was in the right mindset to enjoy it, I enjoyed it without being overly critical of what they were showing me.
2: I, and I, I think that is the key. I think, I think you can be really overly critical with this movie because it's... I, I think if you know, if if you're a person who doesn't necessarily enjoy like slapstick or broad comedy, this is not a movie for you. Um, because mm-hmm. it is like I was saying, like it is what it is and it knows what it is, and I think it accomplishes that very well. And I think that in my experience, the people who I've met who haven't liked it, which have been few and far between, but I always am curious to kind of hear what people's criticisms are, it's that it's not smart enough or you know, the mystery isn't doesn't hold together enough. It's just sort of stupid and goofy and weird and I think that's sort of a silly criticism for people to make because that's that's what it's trying to do. And I'm, I think it's totally fine to not like that and to not have that, you know, be your thing. But a lot of people see that as a fault with this movie. And I think that that's just the nature of what it is. It is sort of silly and broad and not necessarily a really clever mystery. It's not really about the mystery. It's about kind of all the hangings around it.
1: Yeah, I think it, it starts off very much with the the joke with the dogs and stepping in the dog poo. And you've got the Yvette in the little maid's outfit bouncing around with her cleavage at the beginning. And it feels like it's going to be a sort of uh, kind of teen comedy farce thing. And then as Mm -hmm. it goes on, it starts respecting the viewer a little bit more and doing some slightly more clever comedy, some more adult comedy. And you go, okay, this has a good range to it, but it just starts off. It doesn't quite pitch at every different person who might be watching. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes. I, I think a great indication of, of whether or not you'll like this film is, for me, if like I turn it on and I'm not really in the mood, the part where I, I sort of know that is in the very first sort of couple minutes when after Miss Scarlet gets in the car with Professor Plum and they're driving up to the house and they see the house and it's you know this very like ch- sort of cheesy looking backdrop and there's lightning and thunder and they mm. both audibly gulp like if that doesn't make you kind of chuckle, you probably aren't gonna like most of the movie. <laughs> Whereas that that for me is always the moment where I'm like, yes, like this is what I'm here for—is just like silly, over-the-top, murder mystery hijinks. And I, I think that that's, that's sort of the moment where the the movie declares what it is.
1: Yeah, I definitely think so. And and do you think this there's any audience this film is pitched for?
2: I don't. I don't know. I think that. I think that maybe part of the problem when they initially released it is that they didn't know who they were making it for, mm. um, and maybe they didn't know how to market it. But I personally the – th- the thing that I love about it is that I love good, like, theatrical kind of physical comedy, and I love mysteries. And I think that if you're a person who who has a lot of experience reading mystery novels and kind of consuming – mystery, it's really, really fun because of the way that it interacts with those tropes and the way that it leans into them and the way that it leans out of them. Um, So I think, you know, whatever the Venn diagram of, like, physical slapstick comedy lovers and mystery lovers is, like, those people. (laughs) And right in the middle is Lauren. It's me. It's me.
0: (laughs) Yes, it's funny for me because I am not usually a big fan of that physical slapstick comedy. I was when I was very young. I I grew up watching The Three Stooges, and I thought it was absolutely hysterical, and now I can't stand it. Mm. And so it's interesting to me that I did enjoy this movie, but I think the parts that I enjoyed were the less physical stuff. Like The one that keeps popping into my brain right now, thinking about it, is when... um, Oh, I can't even remember any of their names. Um, Christopher Lloyd's character. I want to call him Doc Brown, but. A
2: Professor Plum. Uh,
0: <laughs> yes, Professor Plum. When he's going to catch, I think it's Miss Peacock because she's fainting, and he's like, oh, I'll fall into my arms. <laughs> and she just goes straight through them and falls
2: on the ground, and he just kind of like shrugs and steps over her. And, and now. That, <laughs> that, I think, is what what makes the physical comedy in this movie good. And because I, I actually am largely the same way where it's like, I. I even growing up I did not like the Three Stooges actually. Like that kind of stuff I, I can't I can't really find that funny. I love I love Buster Keaton, but for whatever reason, Three Stooges never did it for me. But I think what's great about the physical comedy in this movie is that it's grounded in character and in story like that. Like the fact that Professor Plum just sort of lets her fall through his arms is exactly who he is. Right. You know? And like for him to sort of nonchalant nonchalantly do that. And same thing with all the stuff with Green and, you know, like him slapping Mrs. Peacock, <laughs> yes. and then you know, saying, like, I had to stop her from screaming. Like, all of that kind of stuff, it's all grounded in who these people are and kind of the tropes that they're filling. And I think that's what makes the physical comedy really fun because it, it sort of exists in context rather than just being physical comedy for physical comedy's sake. Right.
1: We said that there is uh, a, a, an ensemble cast to this, and and everyone is terrific. They, they all bring something very different to it, which is lovely. Madeline Kahn, though, is just sublime in everything that she does. She comes in in this very sort of funereal, quiet way and spends most of the film doing that and only, only starts really coming out as a character towards the end. And then you have these couple of moments that are just they're, – they're both delightful and really surreal where they start going through the endings <laughs> – and Mr. Green turns to her and he's, he's scared of the fact that they're revealing who the killer is and that the lights are going on and off. And she just kind of looks into space and goes,
2: <laughs> I love it's like, a, ah! it's like a weird, like semi warbly like not quite frightened, but yeah. oh, I, yeah, that is such a good moment.
1: <laughs> and, and the very famous moment for her that, where... She starts talking about how she, she hated the girl that was sleeping with her husband. So she just starts sort of waving at her face and doing this whole elaborate speech that never goes anywhere of, I hated <laughs> her so much. These flames on my head.
2: <laughs> flames on the side of my face. Healing, healing breaths. <laughs>
0: I was astonished to find out that that bit was actually improvised by her. And I, you know, anybody who's listened to this show before knows that I always gush about people who improv really great lines because I can't do it. And so I have the (laughs) utmost respect for people who can do this. And, you know, I feel really bad for two thirds of the audience when this movie came out because it only appeared in one of the endings, and so the other two-thirds never got to see it, and it's ah. her best moment. Mm-hmm.
2: It's, it is definitely I, one of the greatest moments of, of the movie, I think. And what I love about it is that it's clear that she just I, either like, forgot her line or just like was going off track and just started doing this thing, and Tim Curry completely goes with it and just sort of steps in front of her and cuts her off, and the timing of it is just mm-hmm. so flawless. Yeah, and oh my god, it makes me it makes me laugh every single time. Yeah, she is really really wonderful in this movie,
1: and and all three of the the the, the women clue characters. Uh, we're going to put Yvette to the side for the moment, but they're all um, very different types of characters. They bring a very different comedy mm. to it, but there's there's they're respected by the other um, cast members. They're given space to do this, I'll let you say, quite broad comedy themselves.
2: Yeah, and they all are so specific in their choices and the way mm-hmm. they interact with the other characters. And uh, yeah, sort of every time I watch this movie, I kind of have a different favorite performance and a different favorite <laughs> character to, to, to pay attention to because they're all so committed to the thing that they're doing. It's, it's just fantastic.
1: But that's definitely the moment that makes me genuinely laugh out loud because it's just so yeah. strange. From this woman who's been quite strange all the way through and slightly morbid like an Adams. <laughs>
2: She's strange in such a in such a consistent way. Mm. Uh, and it's just where she's so she's sort of incredibly high-strung but also calm. You know like she has these moments <laughs> where she sort of gets like carried away, but then she's you know talking about her husband finding her husband dead, and it's just so matter of fact. and it it makes you suspicious, but then also she's not trying to hide anything weirdly. No. I don't know. it's it's really it's really, really great
1: husband should be like kleenex <laughs> disposable
2: yeah i i did enjoy her her take on men yes excellent uh, i think all
0: of the actors in in the core cast did a really wonderful job of making you be suspicious of them yeah. even tim curry as wadsworth who was presenting himself as just kind of the curator of the evening and and following instructions. But from the beginning, you know, if if you look through my thoughts, Doc, from the very beginning, I didn't trust him either, even though they had given us no indication that he was anything other than what he was supposed to be, because... You know, they showed us from the beginning him coming into the house and pretending to be the butler and mm-hmm. and all of that stuff and and so they just all had these little tells or these little quirks that made you kind of think something isn't right and I don't trust this person and yeah. I thought that was pretty good
2: yeah and he's so peculiar you know like he's he's just there's something a little bit off about him like he seems so sort of you know, very much like just a, like a butler who's just sort of down to business and inviting these people in and taking their coats and all the kind of stuff. But there's something just a little bit odd about the way he interacts with everyone. And then, I mean, I, just one of one of my favorite lines maybe ever in any movie is, is just, I buttle, sir. <laughs> what a weird thing to say. <laughs> like, butle is not a word. <laughs> and he just says it like, of course, this is what I do. Of course it's it a has. word when Tim Curry says it. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. And, and I, I think when he's saying it to Martin Mull, he's saying it to, to Colonel Mustard. And, and the way that Colonel Mustard just sort of reacts, he like almost believes it. And then he just sort of has a moment of like, wait, what What did you just say? And it's their reactions are all, all so good. And, I mean, Tim Curry, his ability to, to have a couple of turns – in the movie, and you believe each one. Like you believe that he's this butler who's just sort of like, you know, running the show and kind of separate from it. And then you believe him when he's saying that you know he he and his wife have been blackmailed. And then you believe him when it turns out he's sort of the the, the mastermind behind it. And to thread that needle, I think is is so is just so great of Tim Curry. I mean, he does it really really well. And that that scene where he talks about being blackmailed, that was one of the scenes growing up that I just straight up did not understand because, you know, he's having this very emotional moment talking about his wife and how, you know, she was friends who were communists and the look of disgust on everybody's faces as he talks about them consorting with the communists. As a 10 year old, I like had no idea really what a communist was and why that would have been scandalous in 1954. Mm. So I always remember being like, why is he, why are they all so upset <laughs> that she about, that she's like friends with these people? I did not get it. <laughs> I think there's a lot in this movie that would
0: go over a child's head, but yes. it's funny enough that it doesn't matter.
2: Exactly. And there's stuff that you can kind of, even if you don't understand exactly why something's scandalous, you know, they're acting in, in sort of over-the-top way that you know that it's scandalous. Like the thing with the communist or, you know, Professor Plum's affairs with his patients. Like, that, you know, that was something at like 10 years old that I didn't really understand what was going on, but I knew that i knew enough that it was inappropriate and, and all of that. I think Miss Scarlet, I didn't necessarily have the greatest grasp of what she did. I don't know that I really knew what a madam was at that point. <laughs> <laughs> uh so it was funny to sort of watch this movie like a couple years later. It's the same thing with a lot of I think movies from the eighties and nineties that are maybe targeted towards like a slightly like younger, like a young adult audience, like Clueless and things like that where you enjoy it when you're a teenager and then you watch it a little, when you're a little bit older and you get a lot more of the jokes. Mm. Um, so there's kind of something in there for, for everybody.
0: Lauren, did you have any
2: other favorite moments besides the buttle line? I mean, the buttle line is definitely up there. I think one of my favorite bits of sort of miscommunication and physical comedy is the scene where uh, the cop shows up and they hose all the corpses to look like they've been partying slash are, you know, having <laughs> – these affairs and curtains. And it's just, it's so grotesque and <laughs> hilarious. And then the fact that, you know, the cop then talk, talks to, to Mr. Green and he's saying, like, none of this is illegal. Like, it's America. <laughs> like, it's a free country. He says, well, I didn't think it was that free. <laughs> like, it's just, it's such, a, it's such a silly joke. I mean, that's really... That's really all of my favorite moments are just jokes that are incredibly silly and just very, just very like earnest and committed. I mean, the whole bit where Tim Curry is just running around and kind of pushing people around and attacking people and reenacting the slap and all of these things. And it's just got this frenetic energy to it. I mean, I, I, there's a point in this movie where sort of from the first ending until the very end of the movie, I'm just smiling the whole way through because it's just so much fun. But but definitely the bit with the cop is one of my favorite sort of sequences of him going to these different rooms and seeing these things with these dead people and it's just if you think about it too long it's so gross but it's really funny. <laughs> oh no, I was super grossed out. <laughs> so Super
0: grossed out. I mean, making out with a dead body was just oh, it's just not awful. my favorite
2: thing in the world. <laughs> and she's moving her arms, and they're both sort of rolling their eyes. Yeah. Oh, and, and and then it's right after that that they take the all of the bodies into the study, and they, or maybe I actually uh, I might be mixing up two moments, but just at one point Colonel Mustard is is like poking into the study to see if everything's okay. It's like, yep, three corpses, all good. And just <laughs> the new normal that they all reach very yeah. quickly is so great. I'm just like full on crisis mode. And that's that's another thing that I really love about this movie that um, is another like kind of holdover from, from my love of mystery and from my love of, of television and kind of like the bottle episode is that this all happens in one location in real time. So the, the sense of, like, the ticking clock and, like, the police are going to be here soon and they all have to figure this out and it's all, you're seeing it all happen in real time is just adds a, a sort of pressure cooker element to it that I think I miss a lot in movies now. I feel like every movie I've seen in the past five years has been 30 minutes too long. And there's definitely a point that I hit with so many movies where I'm just sort of like, Okay, but I'm – and now my mind is wandering because, Mm. you know, you're taking a a break and you're kind of, you know, moseying around. And that that works for some movies. Um, I think that the one movie that I've seen recently that didn't feel that long or in the past year was Moonlight. And it it is a very, like, meandering, slow film. But it's done in such a way that that you don't – the mind doesn't wander. But what I love about Clue is that my mind never wanders, even though I've seen it so many times, because there's this ticking clock on it.
0: Well, and it, it is also, like Matthew said earlier, it's got a very frenetic pace to it. And so mm-hmm. if your mind does wander, you're going to miss something. Exactly. I mean, everything that's in it is important and you kind of need to see it in order to get the full experience.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's very little wasted space, which is something that I, I, I think a lot of movies have now where I I sort of leave the theater thinking, okay, I would have cut out those 20 minutes and you wouldn't miss them. And I, I, you know, I think that also the joke density in this movie is wonderful. And all the jokes are so different because there's a lot of physical comedy. There's lots of uh, sort of like contextual comedy, but then there's these little character things that if you're not paying attention, will just fly by you and every time I watch it, I find different things funny. And there are always those kind of favorite moments that always make me laugh. But then sometimes if I'm focusing on one character, like uh, this most recent time, uh, Martin Mull's delivery of – I'm going I'm to misquote the line, but they're in the library and he's, he's talking about something and he's – or no, they're out in the hallway. He's like, you know, mommy and daddy died. And just the way that he sort of delivers – the phrase mommy and daddy is so weird <laughs> and so out of place for this, like, middle-aged colonel with a mustache, you know? <laughs> and so things like that where if you're not paying attention, like, that's just going to fly by because the movie isn't pointing to it saying this is a joke, this is a joke That a way, in, the, in a way that I think a lot of comedies do now where every time I go and see a comedy in theaters, I kind of I, – I always know, like, okay, this is going to be the scene that I can go to the bathroom and I'm not going to miss anything because – a lot of comedies will just point to where the jokes are mm-hmm. and they'll tell, they'll set them up in such a way that you know exactly when they're coming and and you you know exactly how long they're going to last and in what way they're going to happen this is a movie that's you know 85% jokes that they they don't really point to any of them and so if you're not paying attention then they just fly by you definitely
0: yeah. i will say though that i do think that i could have lived without the dog poo gag at the beginning <laughs>
2: That's fair. It's So bizarre. It, I mean, it is really bizarre. One. It's a very strange, strange <laughs> joke, particularly because it doesn't come back at yeah, all. Exactly. Like it's, it's just there, and I, I, I really go back and forth on that joke. Sometimes it works for me, and sometimes it doesn't. I think I respect that it, it's very real. Because like that is such a thing that you know if if you smell something you you check the bottom of your feet because you're not sure if it's you mm. or if it's somebody else, um, and the fact that it's sort of this repeated gag but then it goes away and it's not it's not really serving a purpose it that's I think one of the jokes that you could cut out in the and the movie would be basically exactly the same.
1: Yeah, they call such attention to it. I expect it to come to, and we knew who the killer was because I could smell his shoes or something. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right? Yeah, I think that I think that's too that's too involved. It's too advanced for Clue.
1: <laughs> M- Mandy, what were the things that got you through the film?
0: Ah, uh, my very favorite part of this movie was tim curry running around at the end well in the various endings Hmm. when he's trying to explain to everybody what could have happened and instead of just telling them and walking them through he feels the need to actually run room for room and like pantomime what happened yeah and he is just furiously running with this like weird butler run
2: (laughs) yes run is so strange
0: and, and he's talking so fast, but he gets all those words out. <laughs> and I just, it's one of those moments that brought me actually back to Rocky Horror. Because in Rocky mm. Horror, um, it was Sweet Transvestite that did this for me, where I could not take my eyes off of him, and I thought yeah. he was just brilliant. And the end of this movie is the same for me. Mm. Because he just, he's dominating the space, but not in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah. And I I really did love it. But be, beyond that, there were some really, really great one-liner jokes that I wanted to call attention to just because they make me laugh. And if I say them again, they're going to make me laugh again. <laughs> uh, and some of them are a little on the nose for, you know, 2017. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> um, so, well, the first one, and I'll be honest, I didn't know who said these. So if you guys can can maybe chime in with that on some of them, that I will almost certainly know. <laughs> <laughs> So at one point... Um, They are talking about Mr. Body blackmailing people, and I actually think Wadsworth may have said this, Um, and he said, he decided to put the information to good use and make a little money out of it. What could be more American than that?
2: Yeah, that's (laughs) Wadsworth.
0: And, you know, that
2: is true. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's true.
0: (laughs) And life after death is as improbable as sex after marriage. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I actually paused it to write that one down. Because I was like, that's a good line.
2: (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's Mrs. White.
0: (laughs) Pretty sure, yeah. 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 And then, (laughs) this makes me funny, when uh, supposedly J. Edgar Hoover called the house (laughs) and somebody asked Wadsworth, why is J. J. Edgar Hoover on your phone? And he says, I don't know. He's on everybody else's. Why shouldn't he be on mine?
2: (laughs) Yes, I love that line. I mean, this is in 1985, but it's yeah. so relevant. <laughs> like, hello, 1985, harkening back to 1954, and it still yeah. is
0: so relevant. Yeah. So I think th- those were my top favorite lines, and
2: um, it just oh, those are good. And it, it's yeah, good. That, that last one, Jade Ger Hoover. That, that was another joke that like I did not get for for. A couple of years, because you know I didn't really have any context of who Jed Hoover was when I first saw the movie. Yeah, um, but on the on the subject of Wadsworth running around, um, I I to like you know keep talking about mysteries and tropes and stuff. <laughs> I, one of my favorite things about that sequence is that that's that's what happens at the end of every Hercule Poirot novel, right? Poirot is like you know uh, Agatha Christie's main detective, her most famous detective. Mm. He's the one who. Uh, is the detective in Murder on the Orient Express. So if you've tr- seen the trailer for that, it's Kenneth Branagh with that insane mustache. That's okay. Poirot. Um, and and he, uh, he spends like the last 30 pages of every Agatha Christie novel he's in gathering everybody into a living room and talking them through the mystery. And there's definitely a point sometimes I get with Poirot novels where I'm just like, oh, come on, buddy, just speed it up. Like, because it's half him showing off how smart he is and half him actually solving the mystery. So to do exactly that, but then make it so active where Wadsworth is reenacting things and he's kind of running around and, and, and making this elaborate kind of deconstruction of what happened is such a Fun way to do that exact same Poirot trope of gathering everybody and explaining the mystery to them, but making it really active rather than just like Poirot talking for seven pages. So that's I really I always enjoy that because it feels like such a breath of fresh air within the mystery genre. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's not an easy thing to uh, take apart or do something different with because at some point you have to do some exp- exposition and explain the murder. Exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly, and and it's yeah it just makes it so much more entertaining to watch Mm -hmm. yeah my only real i guess experience with with that trope is
0: sherlock yeah he kind of does the same thing at least in in bbc sherlock um with with benedict cumberbatch at Mm -hmm. the end of every mystery he's walking you through and they're kind of on the screen recapping it for you yeah in much the same way minus the humor and I didn't really think about that and, until you just started talking about Agatha Christie. But it is definitely hmm. a trope. And yeah. and this is a, a fresher take on it, especially since it's not just Wadsworth who's being active. Because everybody else is running behind him to watch to see what he's going to say next, you know? Exactly. And, and so it's the whole group is, is participating instead of just one man showing off how smart he is, which... Sounds like what the the detective from Agatha Christie does, and it's definitely what Sherlock does.
2: Right, because it's it's all... They're all influencing each other. Like Poirot was heavily influenced by Sherlock Holmes, who, despite what Arthur Conan Doyle says, was heavily influenced by um, Dupin, who was actually sort of the first, for like a little mystery history lesson here, (laughs) Um, Dupin was a a character in actually Edgar Allan Poe stories. He shows up in about three stories, and he's sort of the first, he's the prototype of what we think of as like the modern genius detective. Uh. And was such a sort of like prolific figure in just these three stories, and and they, they had such an impact on the genre, that in A Study in Scarlet, which is the first Sherlock Holmes novel, Arthur Conan Doyle actually calls out to Poe and to Dupin by having Sherlock Holmes say in response to... John Watson saying, "Oh, you're like you're like Poe's Japan," and Sherlock Holmes basically is like, "No, I'm way better than that guy." It's like Arthur <laughs> Conan Doyle like throwing some shade at Poe, being like, "Look, I'm gonna do what you did, but I'm gonna do it better." And then I came along, and she's like, "I'm gonna do this, but I'm gonna do this for 40 books instead of you know a couple stories." Uh, so it's to see sort of that 150 year evolution of this character get turned into a sort of bizarre butler and then, like, six other people who are helping him piece together this mystery is incredibly satisfying.
0: But then on top of it, to, to subvert it even more, have him actually be the guy who coordinated
2: the whole right. evening. Exactly. It's, yeah, the the layer is... I, I, if you have any interest in in, you know, reading Agatha Christie, I would say definitely... Read one of her novels, her Poirot novels, and then watch Clue. Or if you see Murder on the Orient Express, watch Clue afterwards because you'll that Murder on the Orient Express, especially because it all takes place in one location, uh, is yeah. It, it, Clue is definitely heavily, heavily influenced by that book.
0: Okay, uh, well, I definitely do want to see that movie, and so I'm I'm glad now that that I saw Clue first, and I think I'll probably take your advice and once I see the new movie, go back and rewatch Clue and do a little bit of comparison. I think that would be fun. Yeah.
1: The the only subversion of that scene that I can think of is uh the Angel episode, Guys Will Be Guys, when uh, Wesley does it. And it's the same thing with oh, having an yes. Englishman explaining it to lots of Americans. But they subvert it by having sort of comedy from the cheap seats and a commentary and overacting yes. going on.
2: <laughs> yeah. And that all takes place in that one hotel, right? That episode? Or am I thinking of a different... Yeah.
1: it's. I think it's in a grand house a bit like this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Is there anything else that we need to discuss about clue? Are there things
2: that you had hoped we would cover that we didn't talk about? Ah uh, I don't think so. Um, no. I mean, we yeah, we talked about kind of all all of our favorite moments. Um I actually no, there is one thing. i the score of this, I think, is another thing that i'm I'm really I am really big into film scores and the way that they, you know, either bolster or or take down a movie. Um, one of the reasons that I really did not like Manchester by the Sea was I thought the score was beautiful but completely misplaced. Um, and one of my favorite things about Mad Max Fury Road was that the score was integrated into the movie so, oh, so well. So yeah. for me, it's like those, those two, pairing those things together is really, really important. And I, I just, I love the little like do 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 in this score <laughs> and how just sort of out of sorts it is with like the mystery horror yeah. of it all. And it really elevates the comedy to its place of just complete absurdity. And then the the record of just, you know, life would be a dream, that song, and just its recurring use is, I, yeah, I just love that. And then when they cut off sounds like when all the power goes out, And it's sort of this, like, semi-frightening moment of, you know, there's, like, the -the jack-in-the-box and people are bumping around in the dark. And then (laughs) Wadsworth just opens the door and gets into the shower and turns the shower on. (laughs) And then (laughs) the only real sound for the next, like, 30 seconds is just the squelching of him running down the hallway. (laughs) It just makes me laugh every time. Yeah, like... I think what really works for me about this movie is that every every element of the the movie is accomplishing the same goal. You know, it's all working in tandem in a really wonderful way, and I think it's just the sound design and the scoring in it is just top notch.
1: Yeah, and, th- and the intro—it's so funny how it's this big, grand, scary movie score going on. Yeah. Dun da da. There's things about to happen. Dog poo joke. <laughs> it's yep. so out of sync with itself.
2: <laughs> and then when you know when Mrs. White comes into the library and she sees a vet and they kind of turn away from each other and there's just that like blah, of like <laughs> oh you you two know each other and it's it's so it's like any pointing to jokes or to action that the movie does it all is it's doing it in the scoring which is like such a great old like 1920s through 1950s B movie horror film thing. Um, and I just, I love, there are just, there's so many nods to tropes and to kind of trends and to uh, like older mystery and in a way that's just so much fun.
1: Normally at this point in the show, I'd be talking about uh, other films that are a good extensions of this, things to, to go and watch, to go and read. Um, and obviously you've talked about the great mysteries, which are great. This is a good jumping off point for. I would be recommending a film called Oscar, but I recommended it a couple of weeks ago. Um, which has a, a similar sort of frenetic energy to it, set in one house. It has Tim Curry in it. It's got some great performances. Um, and what I did want to do is we had some good feedback when I mentioned Oscar from uh, our friend Carrie at We Do Words, who said, Is Oscar now on the list? It was a fave Friday night video rental when we weren't sure otherwise what to get in. I gasped when Matthew mentioned it. It's been so long since I thought of it. I'd love to hear your takes on it. Probably some point in 2019. so i feel vindicated someone else has heard of this film
2: (laughs) i have never heard of this movie before
1: it's it's sublime
2: wow i'll have to put that on my list Mm. of things to watch
1: the the main uh actor the main character is sylvester sloan but it is still a wonderful comedy
2: (laughs) (laughs) interesting uh yeah I'm, i'm trying to think of what other what other movies are sort of like this um i mean I, I think definitely you know like all the mysteries that I mentioned if if you want more mysteries i a I, hard I time thinking of more like mystery comedies I know I've seen some I think there are lots of episodes of television that kind of do a lot of the same work, mm. and nothing's coming to mind but i i mean i am sure if you know I just looked at the Wikipedia list for like famous bottle episodes i would I would have recognized a couple of things but yeah i mean definitely if if people like kind of the the mystery element of this i'd I'd recommend. The, the Agatha Christie that I always recommend to people if people are interested in mystery and want to get into that is one of her lesser-known ones. It's called The Unexpected Guest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, there's no, it's not Miss Marple or Poirot or any of her kind of like recurring detectives. It's a, kind of a one-off. And it's got one of the best twists, in my opinion. So that's The Unexpected Guest by Agatha Christie is the mystery that I would recommend. I think I'm going to put that on my list. I've never actually read Agatha Christie. Yeah, it, she's great. I'm actually a little embarrassed to say I've never read Agatha Christie. <laughs> but I I will put one on my list. It's funny. I don't know I don't know that I actually know that many people who have. I my grandfather got me into Agatha Christie when I was young. Um but I don't I rarely meet people my age or sort of, you know, our generation who mm. have read Agatha Christie. She's a little outdated and full disclosure, like there are lots of moments in her books that are incredibly racist. Um, so, you know, just be aware of that. Um, but other than that, um, you know, it's, it's she, you know, was kind of the the monolith of, of mystery for a long time. And she outsold, the only book that had outsold her for a very, very long time was the Bible. The Bible was the only book that had sold more copies than her books combined. So she was, she's very, very prol- prolific, prolific. Um and so much of modern mystery is definitely owes a lot to her. And if you're ever in London, um, Matthew, I don't know if you've seen it, but Mousetrap, which is very much like Clue but actually dark.
1: <laughs> yes, I think that's the longest running theatrical stage show in, in London now.
2: I think it's the longest running theatrical show in the world, actually. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's been running for sixty odd years, I think.
1: Mm. I remember it's kind what of it... wild. One of my favorite comedians doing a show opposite it and spoiling who the murder was during the <gasps> show. Yeah. No. It got released as a live that show as well. They beeped it on the live, the, the video.
2: <laughs> okay, good. Because one of the amazing things is that, you know, it's run for 60 some years and it's still people mm. don't know who the who the killer is because actually at curtain call, they kind of stop and the, the actors talk to you and say, you know, like, please keep the secret of, of Mousetrap. Don't tell people who, who did it. I've never even heard of this, so. Yeah, it's one of her, she wrote some plays as well, Agatha Christie. Um, And she, it's actually a play that she wrote based on a short story she wrote called Three Blind Mice. And it all takes place at an inn, um, you know, in a snowy weekend. And they kind of get snowed in and there's this mystery. Um, And it's, yeah, it's been running on the West End in London for, I actually saw it last summer when I was there. And they've done something like, I mean, thousands and thousands of performances. Like, mm. it's, it's crazy the number. They have a you know, little ticker in the lobby of the number of performances they've done, and it's, it's in the high, you know, tens of thousands, I think. Okay, interesting.
1: Outside of the, uh, the mystery thrillers, are there any other films that you would consider your classics, your favorites that you want to see if Mandy should have on the list or not?
2: Another favorite of mine that's like a fun comedy uh, is Some Like It Hot. I don't know if that's a film that you've seen. I have not seen it. Oh, and it's not on your list. So definitely throw that on there. It's um, Marilyn Monroe, uh, Jack Lemmon, and Tony Curtis. And it's – Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis are running from the mob, and so they become cross-dressing instrumentalists. They're, they're, you know, band players, and they join an all-women's band and go to Florida to escape the mob. (laughs) It's very silly, um, but has – my favorite closing line of any comedy with Clue in a close second with, I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife. It's <laughs> yes. a great ending line. <laughs> that was a great line, ending line.
1: Building on all the jokes of him being a homosexual all the way through.
0: Exactly. was that. Wonderful. <laughs> so funny. Well, since you suggested a Marilyn Monroe movie, I think now is the time where I admit to the world that I've never seen a single Marilyn Monroe movie. What?
2: <laughs>
1: Ever? Have you? I mean, met I guess Miley? you haven't
2: seen a lot of things, but i like, this is consistently surprising to me. <laughs> that is generally the reaction that
0: I get from everybody.
2: <laughs> well, in that case, I would say, some like it hot, definitely. And then also, another favorite of mine is. Um, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Mm. Okay. Or it, it might be actually How to Marry a Millionaire. Mm, I'll have to I'll have to double check that. Both of them are great, but I, I might be whichever one where they're on like a it's her and another woman and they're singers on like a cruise ship. I think it might be gentlemen prefer blondes. It's it's just it's a lot of fun. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well we can probably put some Marilyn Monroe on the list. Mm. Yeah. If you don't have any already, I would definitely,
0: definitely put that. Okay. All right, well, I think it's time to move into one of my favorite segments of the show where we talk about listener feedback from our previous episodes. And this time, we have some feedback on our Rocky Horror Picture Show episode, which is probably my favorite show that we've done so far. I'm really excited about it. Catherine at Agent Austin 9 on Twitter said she was listening to us talk about Rocky Horror Picture Show. So fun. And she now has science fiction double feature stuck in her head. You're welcome. Now I, I do too. had that song stuck in my head for weeks.
1: Given we were singing it, rewriting lyrics, re-singing it, cutting it, editing it, and then putting it on the podcast, it, it was so long that I just walked around singing alternate versions of that song to try and get it scanning nicely.
0: I did too. Yeah. yeah Lauren we, we rewrote the lyrics to that and opened our, our show with that song instead of our normal intro music
2: amazing and
0: it, it was pretty, pretty awesome we had so much fun with it at Gypsy Book Nerd on Twitter said she fell asleep listening to the new PC Deprived last night so going back to where she dropped off but she has to listen to the song first
1: <laughs> we put people to sleep that's what a podcaster wants to hear
2: Oh, <laughs> you love to hear.
0: But she had to restart it over to hear our song at the beginning, yeah. so that's wonderful. <laughs> and then uh, a couple of our friends also do uh, the Moo Point podcast, which is a friend's podcast, at Moo Podcast on Twitter. And uh, Jazzy wrote, after today's PC-deprived, Jazzy hereby officially swears off singing Phoebe songs. Hashtag bow to the masters. (laughs) So I just want to say, you guys, thank you for uh, liking the song that we did. It was a little bit (laughs) nerve-wracking singing on our (laughs) podcast. So I'm really glad you guys enjoyed it.
1: And and I hope that's not true. It's quite good fun, Jazzy singing all the, the different things.
0: Oh, I absolutely responded to her and told her she's not allowed to stop singing yeah. Phoebe songs because I need my Dinkle song, <laughs> <laughs> but, which technically was a Joey song, not a Phoebe song, but still counts. Know, she she got the point. So. Yeah.
1: But we also want to say uh, thank you to Kate, who sang with us on, on because she was guest on that episode. She sang with us on the song as well. So she was a really good sport doing some recording for us.
0: Yes, and if you liked the song and would like a, uh, to download the mp3 of it, if you are a patron of ours on Patreon, it is available for download. Shameless plug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many ways that you can get in touch with us. If you want to give us your comments on this or any other movie we've discussed, you can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter, and you can also find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Eloquent Gushing. You can also email us using podcast at eloquentgushing.com. And if you want to leave us a voice message, because I know some of you guys have said that you like to talk back at us when you're listening to the show, you can leave us a recorded message at www.speakpipe.com slash eloquentgushing. You can also find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay.
1: And I'm at Matthew Vos. Uh, Lauren, where can the listeners find you in the world of social media?
2: They can find me anywhere at Lauren Shippen. Uh, That's Twitter and Instagram. And I'm the Lauren Shippen on Tumblr. You can also go to laurenshippen.com and thebrightsessions.com for links to all of that social media.
1: Terrific. And thank you very much for joining us today. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I love talking about clues so much, <laughs> as you can tell.
1: <laughs> uh, don't forget, we're on Patreon now. So for as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to exclusive content whilst also helping to support the network and develop new shows with us. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash eloquent And if you want to stay up to date with the latest news and announcements, don't forget to subscribe to the weekly newsletter. The link is also on eloquentgushing.com.
0: And we'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about Spirited Away with Catherine Kay. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay.
1: And that would be 1 plus 1 plus 2 plus 1, not 1 plus 2 plus 1 plus 1.
0: Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.